0: Glad you're here with us this morning. Everybody doing well? My name is Chad Vincent. I'm not the teaching pastor. So if you don't like the message today, you can come back. <laughs> Sound good? But uh, I'm the community group pastor, so uh, glad to be here with you. And uh, let me say a quick word of prayer for us. Father, would you be good and gracious and kind? And as pulpits all over America open your word today, would you bless those churches uh, as they're teaching your word? Would you uh, show your kindness on your nation and the world, most importantly, and would we recognize and be willing to hear what you to say. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Well, it was the summer of 1992, and I was 16 years old, and I was working at a uh, family pool. Um, it's like a private country club type pool, and owned by this particular family. And I was really, I really wanted to grow. For the the first time in my life, I was really owning my faith. I wanted, I was excited about it. I was going to youth group. I was going to camps. And I was really making some good strides. Well, I got this pool job, and I was a lifeguard. And you can kind of imagine, when you're a lifeguard at a pool, it doesn't caduce itself to a great uh, spiritual environment, to say the least. And so, um, I was uh, 16 and... I had friends in the the life garden as well, and I grew up in a small town, and there wasn 't really a lot of options, so a lot of my buddies they just weren 't passionate about the things of God, um, no offense to them, but God just wasn 't moving there and and God really was stirring in me a sense of through my my family my home life a sense of of conviction and so uh and I didn't want to be a third wheel. They would all break for the night. We'd close the pool about 9, clean up about 10. And they would go with the girl, friends, and they would, And there's good old Chad. And I, I refused to be the third wheel. So I would just go home, watch a movie or something, and go ride my bike or just do something, ride my car around. Um, but I just got tired. As the summer went along, June, July, I, I just got really, really tired. And so I decided, well, it's not going to hurt anything. I'll go ahead and start dating someone. And, that, and, and I knew him inside, that's a bad decision. Like, I knew inside, I don't need to be doing this. I need to stay the course. And, and I didn't. I settled. I settled and that whole summer in 1992, I got my heart broken. Because I took control. I took control and, and it got my heart broken in 1992. And I wish I could tell you I learned my lesson, right? I wish I could tell you it's the only time I ever settled. But that's not true. So my, my, my point in bring it to you this morning is, see, in times of waiting, and you really want to do well, but you're stuck in a season of waiting when things aren't quite as they should be in your perspective, my question is, how do you respond? See, how I respond at 16 was, I took control, and I made a decision. You could go apathy, you go comfort. You go a lot of different ways of how do you respond to this world when life doesn't make sense. It's not going as you thought it would go. And that's the question I want to ask you this morning, is how to respond when we're stuck in a season of waiting and life is not working out like we thought it would. Are you like me? Do you find yourself just settling over and over and over again? Well, I want to back up and I want to give you a little background as we dive into Isaiah 56. Go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 56, verse 9. The nation of Israel, see, they had a clear and concise purpose. God was very clear in what he wanted to be about. He told them, he told Abram, he took Abram aside, Genesis 12, and said, I want you to be a blessing. There go, I want you to bless others. That was their distinct mission statement. That was their purpose. He told Israel, you're a nation. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You're not smarter than everybody else. You don't perform better than anybody else. But I'm going to choose you to bless those around you. And that was their distinct calling and their purpose as a nation. And we find ourselves in Isaiah 56. And guess what happens? They're like you and I. They're stuck in a season of waiting. Because they're living before the first coming of Christ, right? They're waiting, anticipating him to come to make things right, to make things as they should be. That's what they're waiting for, to make things as they should be. The church, you and I, we're stuck in a season, aren't we? We're stuck in the season for about 2,000 years, aren't we? We're doing what? We're waiting. What are we waiting for? Waiting for Jesus to come back. Waiting for his promises. See, God has made these promises to his people, to us. And we're, we're in a season of waiting. And when you're in the season of waiting, not sure what you do, but my spirit and my heart and my mind grows very, very restless. As I'm waiting for Christ to come back and make things right, and I look around me, and I won't go into details, but I look around me, and I see things as they shouldn't be. I see injustice. I see things that disturb me. And what do I do in that season? Well, Isaiah... Is going to show you three things not to do. Look at Isaiah 56, verse 9. He's addressing the leaders. See, the leaders had this, well, the New Testament will say they had this form of godliness, the nation, this form, but they lacked the power. But they had the appearance of it, and that's what Israel had. See, they had the leadership, they had the prophets, they had the kings, and they had the royalty. And that was the leadership of the day. The kings, the prophets, and the royalty were the leadership of the day. But they had a form of godliness, but yet they lacked the power. Because the leaders had grown complacent. And the first thing we don't want to do as we're waiting for God to make things right, for God to make them as they should be, we don't want to find ourselves growing more and more complacent. And that's where we find the leaders. The leaders have grown more and more complacent, and we see them categorized as weak leadership. Look at what it says about the watchmen. The watchmen have done what? They're blind in verse 10. Verse 11, the shepherds, what about them? But the shepherds, they are what? They don't have any understanding. And that's the leaders described as blind and no understanding. And that's where we're stuck. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, God's people who were told to be a blessing, to be a blessing to others. You make other people better by being in the room. When they look at you, they want what you've got. When people are around you, they hunger and thirst, I want what that person has. And the nation was performing poorly. They were weak. And they'd grown complacent. And they were blind to the nature of their task. They were blind to the nature of the times. They were blind to the nature of their people. And listen carefully. They were blind to their own failings. Did you catch that? They were blind. The shepherds fared no better The shepherds supposed to be the internal care, really caring for people. And the shepherds were self absorbed, self consumed, and all about self advancement. Hence, verse 11 they've turned their own way. It was all about them. The word picture used when it says they'll never have enough, if you can imagine. Someone's mouth wide open and you keep feeding them and feeding them and feeding them and they never get full They're never satisfied If you have teenage boys, you probably feel that way you keep feeding them and feeding them and feeding them and they're not Satisfied you feed them some more and feeding them some more and then you run out of money and you don't have any more money <laughs> That's where I am So then He concludes in verse 12. He says come Come, let me get a little wine. That's comfort right there. Get a little wine, you comfort it. Let me fill yourself some strong drink. I won't tell you what that is. That's called a little vodka. And tomorrow will be a day of great measure. And see, their unbridled desires have taken over. And if a little pleasure stimulating and comfort is good, then more is what? More is better. And then in our train of thought, much more is what? It's much better. And that's where we are. So complacency has grown and grown. And the leaders have given way to to one response while they're waiting. Complacency. This feeling of quiet, pleasure, of security, often unaware of all the danger. Because right now where you are, everything's fine. And so how do we fall into complacency where we live in a self-satisfied life and give our dependence upon God? How do we do that? See, because complacency is so appealing. It's appealing because this, we feel secure in our jobs. We feel safe in our own strength. We feel good about our knowledge. We feel good about protecting our money and our possessions. And it leads us to build an ivory tower of egotism. We become narcissistic at the highest level because all life is is about me. And that's where we find the leaders. And that's where we can find us today if we're not careful. And what it does, complacency, it numbs you. It numbs you. And it makes you simply disengage from those close to you, withdraw into oneself. And the sad part is, unlike Jesus, what he modeled, we have no compassion for other people who are spiritually and emotionally and physically hurting. And so our hearts grow callous and cold. And we have to ask ourselves the question, when was the last time that I was moved? And what I mean by moved is internally moved, not Externally, behaviorally moved. I mean, inside your chest, you were moved. You were grieved about those around you. See, when was the last time that I was really moved? I was really stirred? We know what that feeling feels like. We get stirred for all kinds of things. But when was the last time I was stirred and moved over the things that really, truly broke or break God's heart? While the leadership is caught in the spiral of increasing compli- uh, complacency, the nation has chosen another poor response. See, they chosen to do the second response. They've chosen to compromise. So the leaders are growing complacent. The nation, they're going to compromise. Compromise is appealing because of the foundational level. Here's what it says. What's it going to hurt? No one ever know. It's no big deal. I deserve it. See, I'm good at these questions. Because I do this. <laughs> and so I know what the thought is, because this is what I do. You're like, how'd you come the questions up? I just examine my own heart. This is what I do. This is what I think. And so Israel's purpose and calling, remember, was to be a blessing. Their, their purpose, their objective was to be a blessing to other people. And yet, during the time of waiting, they grow tired, they grow weary. And they just want a little bit of comfort, a little bit of security, and a little bit of something to take the edge off. Just take the edge off of all the pressure that I'm feeling. Paul says in Romans, do not what? Do not conform to the world, but be transformed. Well, the nation has conformed to the practices, and the picture I'm about to paint for you in the previous verses is going to get really descriptive. And so I'm not going to read through those and explain all that means. I'm going to fly over it pretty high, but it gets intense. It's disturbing, it's depressing, and it's sombering what they're doing. And I'll start with verse 5a, and then verse 7 through 8. This is all about fertility. This is all about sexual pleasure at the highest level. They're gratifying themselves over and over again with sex at the highest level. And that's what the pagan religions did. They encouraged you to gratify that desire because when you do that in front of Baal, the God that they serve, they thought it would provoke him it will move him to action by seeing you do the action. That's where we are in Isaiah 57. It will provoke him to act. And there's the fallacy of the religion right there, the pagan religion. See, it's all about controlling the gods to act on my behalf, not surrendering, submit, come under, but it's about ascending, not descending. And they are performing these sexual acts. And they're not even doing it in private. They're doing it in public. And that's where we find ourselves. If that's not disturbing enough for you, in 5b, if you have children, they sacrifice their their children. They're sacrificing their children to appease the God. They call it propitiation. To satisfy the God of the underworld, the charmer, to satisfy his wrath. So they begin to sacrifice their children. If that's not enough for you, verse 6. They have these stones by the river they're worshiping. And we look at that and go, that sounds so crazy. But to them, it made all kinds of sense. Because that represented a deity. They attribute a deity to stones by the river. And I'm not making fun of them. That's what they're doing. But they're still not done yet. Verse 9 and 10, they're making political alliances with other people, other nations rather. And they're asking the nations for what? They're bringing in all their religions, all their practices, and they're asking the nations, will this satisfy? See, when I settle, what I'm looking for is satisfaction. All day, every day, when we settle. And they grow more and more restless. And they're trying to manipulate the gods. And look at verse 10. See, it's all important how we understand the context because they're in captivity. Isaiah's promised them a better day that's coming, a better day than you could ever imagine that's going to come. It provides you the strength, the satisfaction, the encouragement you want. It's projected to come. But they get restless and weary and waiting. And when that happens, verse 10 happens. You are wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, It is hopeless. You found new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. And you found new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. The gratification the worldly practices offer drove them on and on to pursue again more pleasure. Because it liked them the way it made them feel. And it was better to feel something encouraging way. Hey, hey look at here. So the point is it was it, w- it was uh, better to feel in control than to trust in someone you couldn't control. Because see the nation knew they couldn't control Yahweh. You can't control Yahweh. Yahweh does what he wants to do. And the nation knew that. And so they thought it's better to feel in control than to have no control. So therefore, I think we can relate to it today. I think we can relate. I think what we do is we continue to go to sensual things. Okay? What, do, what looks good, what feels good, what tastes good, what sounds good. I missed one, didn't I? And what? Did I miss one? Sounds good. Sounds good. Yes. See, we go to all those things, and we ask those things to provide us comfort and security, no matter what they are. And that's why, when I was 16, I settled. You know why I settled? Because it looked good. It felt good. It sounded good. I was good. Short term. And that's, that's where Israel is going. When we compromise one Step at a time. And so, where do you this morning, where do you go to take the edge off? It might, it might not be, you might look at that and go, Chad, that sounds crazy, child sacrifices. But you might go to TV. You might go to working out. Okay? You, you go somewhere. You just want to, you just feel all the pressure and you've got to veg out. You might spend a Saturday just laying on the couch eating donuts. Whatever you do. Sometimes I go to the bathroom and just, ah, just a moment of silence. Shut the door and be calm, right? You've got to escape somewhere. And that's what the nation is doing. And that's what I'm saying, one compromise at a time. The next one. The worldly prices the nation were participate in had become integral into the religious price the Lord had prescribed for the people, thus causing the nation to experience watered-down religion. And you all can nod your heads here because we're in Tennessee, I believe. I'm from North Carolina originally, and you call this back where I'm from, Cultural Christianity, and you call this, even more slang, you call this plain church. And that's what's happening now. We just go to church because that's what mom and dad do, or grandma do, and that's what we do. We just kind of go and smile and wave and network businessly, connect with people relationally. That's kind of what I do. So who I am. See? They're just kind of playing church, It's culture. So what happens, I'm performing outwardly these tasks, but inside my heart is detached and dead. I'm not really all in. I'm not really all in, but I give the appearance that I'm all in. And that's called playing the game, playing the hypocrite. What we get accused a lot of Christians of doing, playing the hypocrite. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not going to play church in 58. See, they thought they could fool him. Look at verse 2. 58, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation. See, as if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. As if they were a nation. What, what the Lord's saying here is, you are like that. That's not who you are, you perform that. But I know who you really are based on your motivations. And they are playing the game. And So Christianity has become just transactional, but not really transformative. And so it's become a transactional religion versus a transformative where I really feel like I'm getting better and I'm changing. I'm becoming more like Christ. I just kind of nod, hold my hands up. Amen. Good word, brother. There we go. And that's what he's talking about. And they thought they could fool him. And here's the motivation. Look at verse 3. Their motivation is, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Back to that again. They were using God to get what they wanted from God. And we can relate. They were using God to get what they wanted from God. And Yahweh comes in and says, no, this is not just a transaction. I'm trying to transform you as well. And so then what happened is, if our religion is sincere and doesn't move us to act, to make those around us better, to make us a better place, if it doesn't cause us to, to act, to respond, and we just go quietly into the night... That's not religion. That's not true religion. It's, it's unhelpful to others. It's, it's harmful. And it's unacceptable to God. That's not true religion. If we don't act, is it possible to be truly religious and be socially indifferent? We have to engage society as a whole. There's no going off and retreating. It is always attacking, attacking, attacking. It's not retreating, retreating, and pull back. It's engaging the hearts and lives of people who are hurting, who are discouraged, who need hope. And that's what he addresses. So notice in um, 58, if, then, if, then. About three stanzas of if, then, if, then. Because what he's addressing is the nation had two practices, right? The fasting Ritual practices and the Sabbath. That was there too. Fasting and the Sabbath. And they have turned those practices that were meant to be good and helpful into helping them. And so now it become a competition. It become a comparison. Instead of a lifestyle, it became looking down on someone. Because they didn't do it the way I did it. It became judgmental. And Isaiah comes in and says, no. He wants heart change at the heart level, so he addresses the issue of fasting. It says, verse 6, if you loose the bonds, if you undo the straps, if you let the oppressed go free, see, we fight against injustice. We fight against inhumanity. We fight against inequality because these are our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. And that's why we fight against it. He said, if you do that, then what happens? Your light will shine. You will actually be a blessing to other people. They'll look at you and they want to know, I want what you have. When you're around them, you'll be a delight. You'll make them better people as Christ is making you a better person. And that's the motivation. He says the light will go into the darkness and healing will go into the broken. And then he goes to the next if-then clause. Um, is in verse 9. See, he says, uh, if then, um, if you cry, if you give to the poor, if you get to the hungry, see, if you stop the finger pointing, if you stop the wicked, the wicked speaking, then what will happen is, guess what? He's going to guide you. He's going to satisfy you. He's going to rebuild. He's going to raise. He's going to restore. He's going to repair. This is all in 11 12. Look at the verbs. Repair, restore, raise, rebuild, satisfy, and guide. He says, that's what I'm about. I'm not about man glorifying man. I'm about God glorifying God. I'm about you glorifying God. I'm about you having a distinct purpose, a distinct calling as a nation, as a group of people to say, I'm going to make those around me better. I'm going to be a blessing to people. And then he turns to the Sabbath because, like we can relate here in America, we're pretty much, most of us are workaholics. And so he says the Sabbath, he turns to the Sabbath, if you'll return to the Sabbath, which means a rhythm. If you'll get a rhythm of life. If you'll maintain it, because when you do that hourly, what he's saying is, I really do deep down trust that God's going to take care of me when I take a day off of work and rest. And then look back at verse uh, 58, verse 3, the end of it. And oppress all your workers. See, they were oppressing the workers. So if you're here this morning and you're a boss, that's what he's saying. Don't oppress the people that are under you. Give them a rhythm to life. And that's why he was so frustrated. Yahweh you know was. That's why God was so frustrated. This is not what I intended it to be. I had fast and Sabbath for a distinct purpose, and we're not fulfilling the purpose. And so then we go to cultural Christianity, right? Because see, what you got to understand today, I got my nice pink shirt on for you, freshly ironed. Okay, I got my nice uh, pants on here. Okay, looking good. Anything I'm ugly, it's fine. Just here down, look pretty good. Okay. See, you're getting my best. You are getting my best. You're getting my A game. This is all I got to offer right here is a nice pink shirt, my nice black pants. I even went for a little jog yesterday in the treadmill. I'm sore. My hammies are sore right here. I want to make sure I look good for you this morning. See, you're getting my very, very best. But see, what you don't know is deep inside of here, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But I look pretty polished and got it together, right? I mean, you're getting my best. I mean, pink shirt for a man to do solid. He, he's in his masculinity. He understands it. He's cool wearing pink. I mean, this guy has, I mean, he's secure, right? I mean, who else wears pink to preach in? Pink? I mean, black pants, kind of like Johnny cash you know? I mean, kind of brown shoes. I mean, you're, 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 you're getting my best, my point. This is, this is all I got, but I went to Yellowstone this summer, okay? I'm not a geologist, but I went to Yellowstone. And there was stuff bubbling underneath the surface. Like, you would go to this place in Yellowstone, and it would be bubbling, air and gas coming out. And I'm thinking to myself, my backyard don't do that. <laughs> There's nothing coming out of my backyard. And then you get these glaciers shoot up, and you're going, whoa. And then your kids will go, Dad, it stinks here. You're in Yellowstone, okay? I'm spending all kinds of money, and my kids go, "Whoa, this stinks, Dad. <laughs> Welcome to vacation. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See, see, so what I'm trying to say is, see, it's, so in, in here, in here, something stinks. I'm just telling you. I look good. I can do the cultural Christianity thing. I can shake your hand. I can make eye contact with you. And I can not care anything about you in here. I could use you for my own purpose and my own sweet pink shirt, Chad. Cool guy, Chad. I could take advantage of you and smile and say, I love you too, brother. And that's what's going on. That's why it's so dangerous because our hearts have to break and we gotta quit playing the game. Image management is exhausting, it's not sustainable. Okay? 41, I'm getting there. I wasn't tired at 21. 31, I felt pretty good. By 41, I'm starting to get a little tired. And 51, I'm going to have to take naps, I think, because I'm tired. I mean, I'm already feeling at 41. So it's, it's going to be exhausting to keep this up. Unless, unless I start probably the good news. And that's in 5715. See, we, 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 we see that. You can see, right? If we're faithless, and I'm the king of being faithless, he's still faithful. He's still going to be faithful. The nation has shown that. They show you three responses how not to respond. Complacency, comparison, and cultural Christianity. And it's killing them. So God must act. And that's the good news. See, we're helpless. And God has to act on our behalf. Because these other areas have been, true, have been proven to be train wrecks. And you've done it as well. Okay, I look around. There's some gray hair out here and some no hair out here. I bet you hit some, I bet you hit some gone off the rail a couple times. I bet you've been faithless a couple times like me. And here's the good news. For thus says the Lord the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place. And we all know, I know that, God. That's why I have a lot of shame and guilt and anxiety and fear, because and, you're holy and you high. And then he says, I'm not done, though. He said, and also with him, her, humanity, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive The spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you know what contrite means? I mean, I'll just be just real literal with you. It means to crush, to break, and to cripple. That's who God dwells with. He dwells with people who are crushed, who are crippled, and who are broken. That's where He resides. And so if that means, if it means that, then it must mean I've got to give up control. It must mean that I have to have the courage and humility to be honest about what is going on inside of me. That's where God dwells. Maybe God dwells in those conversations when I'm being totally honest and transparent and raw with someone. Maybe that's where God dwells. Maybe God dwells when I'm hurting. I'm not sure how I'm going to even get up tomorrow morning. And I talk to somebody and I have a conversation. And maybe those are holy moments. Maybe that's where God dwells. Because I don't know about you, but for a lot of times, there's been two options in my life either I stand in my own righteousness or I stand in the imputed righteousness of Christ, something that's I'm baking on him. And I've tried to stand here many times, and still do, still settle, still compromise. But maybe the point is, it's not how I hold on to Christ. It's not me just holding on to Christ, holding on to Christ, holding on to Christ. Maybe it's Christ holding fast to me in my faithlessness. When I'm faithless, he's still there, and he's still holding up, and maybe what I need to do is to receive that. Not perform, not manage it, but to receive that in all humility and brokenness and crippledness and crushedness. Maybe that's what I need to do. Instead of performing and acting, maybe I didn't come here and say, Wow, even though I'm faithless, I want to settle every second. I have a decision. I'm thinking, What's the easiest way to get out of this situation? What's the easiest path? He's still faithful in that. And so as stand on that, I go, I'm all banking on Jesus. That's all my hope is. Because you're getting the best I got today, and the best I got is pr- probably pretty lousy. And that's the best I got. But yet when I bake on him and the best he's got, and I bank on that, then what happens is it's imputed to me, it's accredited to me, and then this theology, this, this robust theology becomes a life. Because now I know, wow, that's the God I serve? Jesus, credit to my account, and I did nothing, but I got to have the humility to be broken, to be contrite. I'm making all my money on that. Because the other way is tiring, it's exhausting, and just to be honest with you, it doesn't work. That works. Because I know without a shadow of a doubt, I am faithless. You ain't got to tell me that. What I need you to tell me is, what do I do when I want to go to shame? What do I do when I want to go to despair? And the gospel comes in and says, I take the one in despair, the one in shame, the one in guilt, and I raise up, and I take the one who's self-righteous playing the church games, and you know what I do with them? I crush him and her. Woo! I crush that one and raise this one up. I'm thinking, that's where I want to be. So when I settle, that's what makes it so beautiful. See, when you perform so poorly, when I perform so poorly, God, Christ, is still holding fast to me. If I can omit that in humility, my need, that will change your paradigm. And then, unlike the pagan religion, not using God, I desperately need God just to breathe. Just to breathe. Because I don't have it all together. And I can't manage it. And I can't pull it off well. And I pray, Lord, as we receive that, my friends, I pray that will be satisfying to you. And <clears throat> those moments when you compromise. And you settle. And you become complacent. And you play church games. And culture Christianity, I pray you go back home to the God who raises this guy in self-pity, the woman in self-pity, he raises them up and he takes the one who's righteous and arrogant and judgmental and he'll crush them. But probably you this morning, you probably need to be raised up because you're probably beat down and you need to know when you're crushed, you're right where you need to be. As a response, will you stand with me? just a way of response. Um, You know, humility is just basically all about crushing our ego. You want to put your ego on the altar and you won't allow God to crush it. And so uh, the writer, he's a writer, he's a pastor, he's a theologian, his name is Andrew Murray. He says a Berenike and he's a prayer about reminding ourselves how to be humble, about how to be contrite, how to be sincerely broken. And he he writes this. If you'll just bow your head and listen to this prayer. That of his great goodness he will make known to you and to take from your heart every kind and form and degree of pride, whether it be from evil spirits or your own corrupt nature, and that he will awaken in you the deepest depth and truth of humility which can make you capable of his light and his Holy Spirit. Amen.